Well, good morning. If you are a guest here with us this morning, maybe you're online. Uh, my name is Stuart McCray. I have the joy of serving here as one of the pastors, and it is a, a delight to be able to bring you God's word this morning. We're going to be continuing in our series in Isaiah, looking at uh, chapters 24 through 27 this morning. So go ahead and start flipping there, scrolling there, chapter 24 in Isaiah. And while you're doing that, in his book, The City of God, Augustine, the African bishop of Hippo, Hippo proposes that mankind can be seen uh, as two peoples, really two cities. He says the city of God and the city of man. Augustine wrote, two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the heavenly by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself and the latter in the Lord. For the city of man seeks for glory from men, but the greater glory of the city of God is God himself. The one lifts up its head in its own glory. The other says to its God, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. This metaphor uh, for humanity is useful because Isaiah, the originator of it, deploys it in our passage this morning. In Isaiah 24 through 27, the prophet has a, has a vision for the end of all things, and he, and he organizes his prophet really by way of two contrasts, the city of God and the city of man, and the songs that are sung in these cities. And the, the main takeaway for us this morning is that Isaiah 24 through 27 teaches us three victory songs that will be proclaimed in the city of God, and in Jesus, the truths of these songs can be celebrated right now while we wait for that day to come. We need to understand and to receive these truths ourselves because the spirit of the city of man, which, which we'll talk about in a moment, the spirit of the city of man still exists in us in our remaining sin. And like Isaiah, who was trying to cast a vision for the faithful in his day to trust in these truths, we too need to hold on to these truths and to remind each other of these truths as we journey to the city of God. They intend to give us strength and hope. Now, like the previous sermons in Isaiah, we're not going to be able to cover everything. We've got four chapters in front of us. Our point here this morning, that what we want to get a hold of is the, the city of man, and then we want to look at these three songs that, that will be sung in that day and that we can, the truths of those songs that we can enjoy and rest in right now. So let's, let's get going. 24 through 27, this these chapters conclude that the series of judgments that we've seen to the nations that started back in chapter 13. Here in chapter 24, God's personal, active, universal judgment is the main theme. I mean, immediately in verse one, we read, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The, the, the nations, the specific nations that had been dealt with previously are now gathered together and seen as one fallen earth and, and then metaphorically as a city. In verse 10, Isaiah says, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. The, 
And then that city of man metaphor is then stitched throughout the rest of these chapters. You'll, you'll see at least the verse references in your sermon notes, but here they are again in, in 24.12, there's the desolation left in the city of man. In 25.2, the Lord has made the city of man a heap, the fortified city a ruin. In 26.5, for the Lord has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. And then in 27.10, for the fortified city is solitary a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. And Augustine helped us to understand what Isaiah is intending. The, the city is not buildings. Isaiah wants us to move beyond Babylon the city to the spirit of Babylon. For Isaiah, the city of man is a system to pursue life independent of God, to be self-sufficient. The city of man is the arrogant pursuit of establishing and celebrating our own perceived greatness. It's a construct for artificial safety and peace. It's a framework to simulate joy. It's a plan to produce our own salvation. The city of man is a is sinful rebellion against God. Now, going back to verse 10, there's, there's, an, there's an irony here that we need to see. Isaiah describes the, the city as the wasted city. Uh, he says the wasted city is broken down. Broken town is the destruction, but the description of this broken down city is the wasted city. And that means the city without form. Uh, Moses used this term when he wrote Genesis 2.2. The earth was without form and void. And God does form the earth into beauty with meaning and purpose. But before he does, it's just a lump of clay without form. And poetically, listen, poetically, Isaiah is highlighting the folly of constructing life apart from God. Here's the irony. Every attempt to construct meaning, purpose, Order, beauty, apart from God, is just creating a city without form. And in the end, Isaiah tells us that the city of man endeavor, that this building project is, is futile because it will be destroyed. And part of that destruction is seen in its songs. Chapter 24, verses 7 through 8 says, The wine mourns, the vine languishes, and the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines, still. The noise of the jubilant, ceased. The mirth of the lyre, stilled. Some mix of anguish and just silence will be its song. In the end, in the city of man, after all the pretenses crash down, there will be no songs of joy, no songs of safety, no songs of vitality, no songs of self-adulation, no songs of comfort heard. The party ends. Now, desiring the will of God to be done, we, we should want God to put an end to the city of man, Bo both out there and in here. In the sin that still remains in our hearts, 
Brothers and sisters, we, we still have little cities of self that are, that are built high in our hearts that need to be torn down. And by God's grace, he will tear them down. And one of the ways that we're going to see in this passage is through the truths of these songs that we're going to consider. And so let's, let's do that. Let's look at these songs that will be sung in the city of man on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The first song is in chapter 25. There's one in each of the following three chapters. In chapter 25, this resides in verse nine. What you'll notice about all of these songs is they are, they are what is in quotations. Chapter 25, verse nine. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. If we were to give this song a title, it might be Our God, the Faithful Savior. This song uh, uh, has two lines, essentially has two lines, and they parallel each other. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these songs uh, in tandem, phrase by phrase. The, the first declares, this is our God, which is a, just a general way to describe God. It, it's saying he's personally our God, but God is just a general way to describe him. And then in the second line, it says, this is the Lord. And that is the personal name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the faithful one who makes promises to his people and keeps those promises always. This is what Isaiah celebrated in verse one. If you'll look in verse one, he says, O Lord, there's Yahweh, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name because for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure, or with complete faithfulness. One commentator says, Yahweh's plans and promises are as sure to Isaiah as completed history. Such praise is an act of faith in the character of the one who keeps his promises with complete faithfulness. I, I, I recently said to Lauren when she asked me to do something, I said, Consider it done. You guys have probably said that before, at least heard somebody say it. And of course, when we say that, we, we haven't actually completed the task that's been given us yet, but we believe ourselves to be faithful. We make a promise to do it, so that person might as well consider it done. And if we can say that about ourselves or think that about others, how much more ought we to believe that about God? And this side of the cross and resurrection, we have more reasons than Isaiah did to believe this about God. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul stunningly says, for all, all, every single one, all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Our God is supremely loyal and faithful in Jesus. Then with the next phrase, both lines say, we have waited for him. This is important. If you're thinking about Hebrew poetry, probably poetry in, in general, if there's an exact uh, replication, it's emphasis. So here's the emphasis. We have waited for him. It is not we have worked for him. It is we have waited for him. So this is the kind of waiting that is done expectantly. This is the kind of waiting that confidently believes that what is waited for will happen. And why? Because this is the kind of waiting that's possible when the faithfulness 
And the faithfulness of the one who's being waited on is unassailable. This is our God. This is the Lord we have waited for him. Our God always keeps his promises. He always accomplishes his plans. He is unwaveringly dependable. Consider it done, God says, and we can wait for him. Finally, the the last phrase, the first line ends that he might save us. God's salvation is the purpose for waiting. Whereas in the second line expresses the appropriate response uh, for the salvation waited for, rejoicing, singing, celebrating. Now the surrounding verses to this song talk about salvation, this thing that was waited for and celebrated in two different ways. In verses two through five and 10 through 12, salvation is from physical enemies. And in verses six through eight, salvation is from a spiritual enemy. And and here's the key, the salvation from physical enemies, the salvation from the physical always points to the salvation of the spiritual. Listen, the, the spiritual battle is always the greater battle. In fact, battling against physical enemies is a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And if it is for us, so too it is for God. With that, let's do highlight the greater salvation in verses six through eight, starting in verse six. On this, mount, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. On this mountain, Mount Zion, the city of God, two things occur. In verse six, God prepares eternal life. The the victorious king invites all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The victorious king invites all all people who worship him to enjoy his victory feast. In the ancient Near East, this this was a common thing, that when a victorious king had victory, he would celebrate by bringing in his people in and, and celebrate with great feast and great wine and great food and give gifts. This theme is picked up in chapter 55, which we will not look at today. We will get to where the invitation to the banquet is the chief benefit of the victory of the suffering servant who we will see is Jesus. The free royal banquet theme is used in the gospels as imagery of life in God's kingdom and in Revelation we read of the marriage supper of the lamb to come. The second thing that occurs on this mountain is God eradicates eternal death. The first is he provides eternal life. Second is he eradicates eternal death. The promises of Isaiah 25, six through eight are, are are picked up in the New Testament to give hope to God's people. You you might be familiar in thinking where I'm going here. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Revelation 21.4, John tells us the new heavens and the new earth that, that there the Lord will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This song, Our God, the Faithful Savior, will be sung in the city of God for all eternity. And the truth of this song, and you'll, you'll see these if you have your notes in front of you, is God is faithful. He is our Savior. He lavishly provides good gifts. He keeps his promises and accomplishes his plans. He can be depended on, and he can still be waited on expectantly. Also, we are dependent upon God for life. We cannot produce our own salvation, and we are not God. City of man thinking. City of man thinking is, is seeking, celebrating, trusting, resting in anything other than God. It, it, it's, it's thinking contrary to these truths. Let's consider ourselves, when I was thinking about a question to ask, the first thing I came to mind was, well, would be, where are you trusting yourself? But, but I realized there's, there's something more specific and a little more tied to this passage, and that is, where are you impatient? Remember some of the truths of this song, God can be depended on, he can still be waited on expectedly. We are dependent upon God for life. We are not God, but city of man thinking is self-reliance. It is an unwillingness to wait, and it is always needing to have our hands on the controls. Where do you lack patience? Parents, is it with your children? Maybe it's with your spouse or a friend who's not changing quite at the rate that you'd like them to be. Maybe it's the slow development of finding that new job or that new house. Maybe it's that, that promotion that just seems to always be a little far out to reach. Maybe it's that new assignment that just keeps kind of getting pushed out. Single folks, maybe it's the lack of spouse. Where in your life are you or can you be tempted to think, God, you are too slow here. You, you have been silent here long enough. What's at the bottom of this impatience? I, I think Isaiah would tell us it's faithlessness. I, I think Isaiah would be pretty honest with us and tell us it's faithlessness. Our lack of patience, our impatience is faithlessness. It's the, it's the kind that doesn't want to depend on God or doesn't think that he is dependable. Similarly, it can also be the kind of faithlessness that has that sneaking suspicion that we can forge a better future for ourselves. 
family, God wants to give us grace for change. As we evaluate, we're, we're tempted to embrace city of man thinking. And as we pursue together, celebrating and enjoying and reminding ourselves of the truths of this song. All right, the first corporate victory song is our God, the faithful Savior. The second song is found in chapter 26. It's in verses one through six. If we give this one a title, it might be Our God, a Safe Stronghold. Now, this song has three verses, and I, I hope this won't be confused. It has three verses, and the first verse is found in verses one through two. I, I couldn't think of a better way to say that. It's a song. It has verses, but so is the Bible, and it has verses. So, look, it has three verses, and the first verse is in verses one and two. So let's read verses one and two. We have a strong city. He, uh, the middle of verse one, excuse me. We, we, again, in the quotations. We, we have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Here we go. The city of God is now plainly identified, described as a city, a, a strong city. It is the spiritual city of God's salvation. And God's saving power surrounds the city as, as an impenetrable defense and an impenetrable defense that will not fail in its capacity to keep its citizens safe. But what's more, Isaiah says that it is God who sets those walls up. He sets up salvation. It is God who provides delivering and protecting grace. And we, we think about this in, in, in an opposite fashion. There is no safety, no protection, no comfort, no salvation found outside of these city walls. That's what Isaiah is poetically describing salvation as in terms of strength, safety, and protection, and comfort, and it's all God's doing. What we also see, and we won't, we won't be able to look at them this morning, but we also see that verses seven through eight and verses 20 through 21, that Isaiah picks up similar themes to add to this song's imagery. The, the second verse of this song is found in verses three through four. And it's important to note here, this is interesting because this is a song that will be sung in eternity, but the lyrics of this verse actually look back and think about those who will enter in. In other words, these, these lyrics in this verse have direct application to you and I right now. So let's, let's read them. Verses three and four. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This theme of peace is later picked up in verse 12 where it's declared that Yahweh will ordain peace for his people. The, the, these verses have been lifeblood for my life. And, and, I, and I trust that these leap off the page in this song. Oh, we desperately need these truths because we do live in a land of chaos. And so brothers and sisters, right now, right now, this coming week, you can have 
unshakable peace in your chaos if your thoughts are fixed on God. Think Peter walking on the water to Jesus. So long as he trusted in Jesus, kept his mind and his eyes beholding the safety and strength and empowering grace of Jesus, he ridiculously stayed safe and secure on top of the water. But, but when the enormity of the storm, his circumstances overtook him, he sunk. Listen, this isn't denying your circumstances. This isn't denying your chaos, but it is learning to trust God more than what your eyes can see. Family, the transformative grace of trust will enable us to say, along with Charles Spurgeon, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Chaos abounds. Life is unstable. The bottom is going to drop out. But God is a trustworthy, everlasting rock. He is unchanging in his being, in his character, in his promises, in his plans. And when the storms come crashing in, you can be confident that the rock of ages will unshakably hold you fast. Listen, only the pretense of peace can be found in the city of man. But in Yahweh, there's true peace, abiding peace, perfect peace. In Romans 5, 1, Paul writes, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we do have an objective peace with God through our justification by faith in Jesus. But, but here in this passage, we, we are, we're being compelled to see that we can actually enjoy subjective peace as we encourage one another to trust in the Lord because he is an enduring, unchanging, immovable, reliable, everlasting rock. The third verse in this song is found in verses five through six. Let's, let's read them. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The, the third verse in this song gives reason why we should consider God the trustworthy, everlasting rock. And, and simply put, it is because he is just. Our God will forever and always do what is right. Here's how one commentator puts it. The, the ultimate outcome will be in accordance with God's justice. For he deals graciously with the oppressed and the poor. There is a reversal of positions and that those who are proud in their own eyes will be humbled under the feet of those that they despise. God employs what is foolish in the world to shame the wise and chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
Again, you'll, you'll find on your note that the, the truths of this song is that God is strong. He provides protection and safety. He is trustworthy. He is unchanging. He provides comfort. God is just. And we see about ourselves here that we are dependent upon God for safety. We are weak and we live in trouble. There is transformative grace in these songs for us to encourage one another with so that as we go on our trek to the city of God, that we would keep our hearts and our eyes and our mind on that vision and away from the vision of the city of man. So let's be eager and quick to do that together and to remind each other of these truths. All right, so that second corporate victory song, Our God, A Safe Stronghold. And the third and final song is in chapter 27 in verses two through five. If we were to give this one a title, it would be Our God, the Victorious Keeper. There are two verses in this song. There is two through three and then four through five. So let's, let's start with verses two through three. We'll go right into the quotation. This is the song in that day. A pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. Back, back in chapter five, the Lord described his vineyard, his people, as worthless. But here, in that day, God sings of his people being a pleasant vineyard. This is God's song. This is the victory song that God sings about his work in eternity. And the reason is the Lord is the vineyard's keeper or guardian. In verse one, Isaiah tells us that at the, at the end of all things, in that day, the Lord will strike down the great serpent Leviathan, and which is to be seen as God's ultimate victory over sin, death, and, and, and Satan. And listen, as a vine dresser, he's doing two things. One, he, he is not rough and careless with his vine. He is tender and gentle, de desiring his vine to bear fruit and flourish. But on the other hand, Yahweh, the victorious keeper, has defeated all the weeds, the enemies of his people, and so can announce in that day that his people are pleasant, desirable, lovely. The imagery of this the verse in this song is picked up later in verse six. The second verse in this song is found in verses four through five. Let's read that. I, he declares, I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march against them. I would burn them up together or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. God declares that he has no more wrath towards his people. All that was wrong, all the thorns, all the, all the bristles, all the weeds, everything has been taken out and his righteous anger and his just wrath has been satisfied. Indeed, indeed he says, if there were briars and thorns presented like an army to battle, he would go out and get them and set them on fire. But in that day, the previous abandoned state of the vineyard is no more. God promised to be long-suffering and merciful to any who would lay hold of his protection and make peace with them. 
more imagery of this verse is picked up in verses eight through 11. The, the truths of this song are God is protector, he is diligent, he is committed, he is merciful, he is victorious, and that Jesus, God, is not wrathful towards his people. Also, we are cared for and protected. Now, much of what we've seen in Isaiah, again, this goes, this goes all the way back to chapter 13, much of what we've seen in Isaiah is bleak, it's judgment, judgment against the nations, and now judgment against the, the city of man, the, the spirit of the nations that are hot in hostility against the Lord. But speaking about his people, God says, I have no wrath left. This is the good news of the gospel. God is no longer justifiably angry with those who trust in Jesus' atoning, propitiating work on the cross. If you're trusting in Jesus, this truth, I have no wrath left. If you are trusting in Jesus, this, this truth is just as true for you right now as it will be for God in completion then. 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. You ask, what, what is love? This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In love, through Jesus, God made a, a way to propitiate, exhaust his wrath his just wrath against sinners and their sin, like you and yours and me and mine. And Jesus, God's wrath, having been exhausted, has been now even turned into favor so that all that remains for his people is peace and fatherly affection. Let me ask, is, is city of man thinking in your heart causing you to to doubt or be suspicious of God's love for you. Maybe you've really given into temptation lately. Maybe you've been going through a, a hard stretch of suffering, of dealing with pain and hurt Maybe you just have this sneaking suspicion that God doesn't want much to do with you. That's you know this in Jesus. God sings over you. I have no wrath left. Jesus took the, the cup of God's wrath. That's the way it's described in the Bible. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath that you deserve to drink for your sin and he drunk it all. There is not one drop left for you. No, only love remains. Family, we, we together must remember this sweet truth of the gospel. 
And there's more truths in this song. And by his grace, our victorious keeper will continue to root out the remaining city of man weeds in our hearts. All right, so the last song, we gave it the title, Our God, the Victorious Keeper. Now, we brought up Augustine in the beginning. If we go back to Augustine, Augustine thought that we could consider an overarching storyline, sort of meta-narrative of the Bible being these, these two cities. And he saw them as inaug being inaugurated, this, this sort of storyline with Cain and Abel. Here's how one author sums up Augustine's thinking. God planted a garden, but Cain, an offspring of the serpent, built a city. Cain doomed to be a fugitive and a wanderer, always insecure, always on the outside of things, satisfied his need for belonging and significance by remaking the world his own way, by taking control on his own terms, by constructing an alternative reality to keep the divine curse from having its full impact. And we, we see the, the spirit of these two cities go on through the rest of the, the story. In the end, Augustine connects the Bible together with these two stories, thinking about God's victory over uh, man's arrogant pride, and he sees it in a divine cosmic reversal. In the end, here's Augustine's thought, beautifully connects this. In the end, God doesn't just restore Eden. God takes the very symbol of man's rejection of him, a city, and transforms it into heaven, a holy city, the new Jerusalem. This is where Isaiah ends his vision of all things. In, in chapter 27, verse 13, this is it. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. See, there, there will be a day when a great trumpet will be sounded, and it will be the sound of victory. And, and at that sound... All of the faithful exiles, uh, all, all of God's elect, as the Gospels say, will return to the holy mountain of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the city of God, to worship the Lord, to sing his praises. And this is what we get to do right now. Right now, we get to lay hold of the truths of these songs and proclaim them as true. Consider done right now. Now, right now, Isaiah 24 through 27 teaches us that there's three victory songs that will be proclaimed in the city of God. And in Jesus, the truths of these songs can be celebrated right now while we wait expectantly for that day to come. But by God's grace, we, we need to together, this is a community project. These are corporate songs. We, we need to, by God's grace, together let the truths of these songs shape and form us in our thinking, in our desires, in our loves, so that the vestiges of the city of man that remains in us will get reduced to rubble. There's grace to do this. Let's do this together. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for giving your 
servant Isaiah of vision and for that vision to be retained all these many years so that we could catch that same vision of the songs that will be sung in eternity forever. And, oh, let us, let us take now and think of this life as a grand rehearsal for the, for, the, for the chorus that will be sung out then. Help us to intentionally, together, think and enjoy and celebrate and rest in these truths. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.